Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. I invite you to take your Bibles, open them to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter number 1. On chapter number one, we begin a study today um, that I've simply called, uh, and I think you'll understand why in a moment, the emotional life of Jesus, the emotional uh, life of Jesus. And um, in a minute, we're, uh, we're going to jump into this. And I, before I do that, I feel like I need to, uh, I, I feel like I need to make a few remarks um, to kind of give you an idea of where my my heart is today uh, on this, I, I'll, I'll tell you where my heart, meaning where my heart is, my head is all over the place on this. Um, this, uh, those of you that have been a part of our church, you know that I, I believe in, I believe convictionally in expositional next chapter, next verse preaching. I think that's the, the steady, healthy diet for a church. Um, it's it's like feeding your children good, healthy food. Uh, it, it's what a church family needs. By, by the way, uh, um, Pastor Mike, if you just kind of tell anybody that, that can come in, in the lobby to make their way in, uh, it'll help. Um, people are working their way in. I, let me just kind of let me kind of explain a little bit of my heart behind this. First off, I don't I don't really um, I don't really like being away from the Gospel of Mark. Because uh, that's where my my head and my heart have been for the last year. Um, I when I got into this study, I I picked uh, through prayer, through just consideration, I picked four different emotions of Christ that I wanted to speak to. This week I was studying, putting that all from from my study, my reading over the last couple of years on this topic, putting it down, and I found myself. The goal was to preach to you today on the joy of Christ. And I found myself three pages into my notes and not even being to joy yet. <laughs> and I thought, oh, we're going to have a problem here. And I, and, I, and I just kind of stepped back and thought, maybe this is what the Lord would have me to do today. Instead of touching on the topic of joy, and when I say joy, I'm talking about the, the joy of Christ. Um, in touching on that, I, I, I'll come to that next week. I felt like I needed to intro all this here. And so that's, that's what I'm going to do today. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with the message. I'll just tell you that now. Uh, I don't like it. I, I could probably write it three more times and still not like it, but I'm going to trust the Lord with it, all right? There's a good possibility I'll say something really crazy today, okay? So just bear with me, be patient with me. Because when you get into a topic like this, you're 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 trying to thread a very uh, trying to thread a, a needle very carefully theologically. Okay, I'll say that, and I think you'll understand why. Let's start with let's start with reading God's word. You find find there John one. If you have a Bible, I, I would encourage you 
uh, I would encourage you to also find your place, if you have a, a Bible, in, in the book of Hebrews. We'll kind of put, your, put a marker there. We'll come to that in a little bit. But John 1, uh, and, 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 and I think the best way to describe this today, I, I wanted to say this, is it's almost like, think of it like you and me and Mindy, uh, we're going to sit in my office and we're going to have a discussion, a conversation today. It's probably the best way to say that. I, I don't think you'll ever hear me say that much as a pastor because our conversation is with God's word, but, I, but I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to unfold something that I think we need to hear today. So um, think of it like that more than it's, it's me preaching uh, at you or, or with you today. Uh, John chapter 1, look at verse number 1. I, I, I'll read uh, much of this portion uh, through verse number 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. It's an important verse. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might, be, might, might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That verse right there matters significantly to our text. Notice those first, those first uh, six words, and the word, a divine name, a divine description, the word was made flesh, a human reality as well. Look at verse 15. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all have all we received in grace for grace. And the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This is the, the basis for the launching pad, if you will, for this study of the emotional life of Jesus. Today, we're going to consider uh, the emotions, the emotions of Jesus. I want to invite you to pray with me one more time before we get into God's Word. Gracious Father, we, we come before you. I think my, my task is extremely difficult today to explain, to help us understand who is this Christ, truly God, truly man, how do we understand the implications of that? How do we understand the implications of the incarnation for how our life is lived, for how we live emotionally as people, as your people? Uh, to give us an understanding uh, of Jesus uh, in a very full and glorious way. Give us, give us now the aid and the help of the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Lord, I help me to... To, to always be 
biblical and, and truthful to who is Jesus. And help me not to say anything that would distract any believer from grasping that or any unbeliever from seeing the need for this Jesus. We pray this in his name. I enjoy, I enjoy the yearly tradition of, of learning about the coming of Christ, the Advent season. Jesus, born of a, of a virgin into the world, the God-man, uh, the Word made flesh. Uh, many churches will have a Christmas series and they'll, they'll focus on the Christmas story. I, I love that. I, I love that for me. I love that for you. I think it's great. We do that here every Christmas season. Um, but what I really love to do, and, and, and bear with me when I say this, what I really love to do in the Christmas season is I love to bring to mind biblical truths that I think are often neglected. We, we, we often think of Christmas, and, and by the way, we did this a couple years ago. We, we consider Mary Joseph the wise men. We consider King Herod. We consider all that. I, I, I love doing that. I also know that there are things this season of life this season of the year that are, are helpful and appropriate for us. And I love to consider what I think are aspects of the biblical story that are less considered. Last year, for instance, we, we looked at the, the, the heresies of the incarnation. Maybe you remember that. We, we talked about Arianism, and we talked about Apollinarianism. We talked about uh, these, these heresies that have crept into the early church because we wanted you to understand that these heresies are still prevalent today. We considered heresies like docetism that stated that Christ was a spiritual being with the, only the appearance of being human. And the point of all of that is that when we fail to understand the fact that Christ is truly God, truly and fully God, while also being truly and fully man, we fail to embrace the complete Savior that we have in Christ. See, you have to keep in mind that if Jesus is only God, He cannot suffer for us or sympathize with us. If Jesus is only God, he cannot suffer for us and he cannot sympathize with us. You would have a Savior who's totally disconnected from the human realities of life. On the other hand, if you had a Savior who is only man, that he cannot, that man cannot satisfy the wrath of God. There is no human way that any of us could ever satisfy God's wrath. He could not, if he was truly only just a man, he could not, Jesus could not secure our salvation. And so to be the God-man, that he is truly God, means he, can, he, he bears the wrath of God, he secures our salvation, and at the same time, he suffers and sympathizes, suffers for us and sympathizes with us. But the goal in all of this is that we, that we know the real Christ. We know the real Christ. And you've heard me say this many times. We need to know the real Christ because if not, we create a caricature of who Jesus is that the Bible does not give us. And so the Bible is our guide, informs us of who is the real Jesus. What is he like? How is he, what has he accomplished? And what is my response to those accomplishments? How, how if, I, if I understand what Scripture says about who Jesus is, how then do I follow him? How should I then live in light of this Christ? 
from this framework, we're going to consider this Christmas season the emotions of Jesus, the emotions of Christ. Now, I want to say a few things directly to you to just kind of put these things out of the way. Number one, I'm a pastor, not a therapist. Okay? I have no intention to become a therapist. So as I speak, I speak as a pastor who brings the theological, biblical realities of life to bear for us. Secondly, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor who has battled through with the grace of God, with the help of my wife, my kids, a very brutal stretch of my own mental health struggles. I would not stand here and tell you that I'm out of the woods, but I would tell you by God's grace, I'm doing better. Um, And I'm trying to be intentional day in and day out to understand my own mental health needs. Some people do well talking about their journey. I, I, I am glad to talk about it publicly. I don't know that I'll do much of it behind a pulpit on a regular basis. When it comes to a topic like emotions and emotional health, I think it's important, vitally important. And, and I don't want you to miss what I'm going to say, that we don't turn Jesus into a psychologist. That we don't turn Jesus into a personal life coach. That we keep the Bible, it's important that we keep the Bible within the framework that God intended. There's a key line there in your handout that I don't want you to lose track of. The Bible cannot mean now what it didn't mean to the original audience. The Bible cannot mean now what it didn't mean to the original audience. Keep that in mind as you read and study the Scripture. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a different application. It applies differently in 2023 in various ways than it did then, but the meaning of the text is what God intended for it to mean. So because of this, my goal today and this month, I, I've just got to be honest with you, is not, I'm not going to do a ton of speaking specifically to the topic of mental health but more to address how the incarnation of Christ shapes our emotions, which would then in turn maybe lead to some help in application with mental health for some. With those remarks in mind, I I do understand that the Christmas season comes with a heightened awareness around mental health. Many find this season to be very discouraging, very, very, they find themselves very anxious this time of year. They find themselves very overloaded and very, very overwhelmed, I should say, in the, in the holiday seasons, and I get that. When I was in the thick of my own journey through some of the things that I had wrestled with, a friend of mine introduced me to an essay. It was written by a guy named B.B. Warfield. The B.B. is, the, I think, the best name ever, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Warfield was written, was, was, excuse me, Warfield was born in 1851. He attended Princeton Seminary in the 1860s and early 70s. He died in 1921. Reading Warfield is is difficult. You're going to need an 1828 dictionary to help you. But but he's a gift. He was a gift to Christian thinkers in his time and even now. My attention was turned to his famous essay, and the the essay is called, you'll find some similarities, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. The emotional life of our Lord. If you like to read hard, difficult things from men who are dead, this is a good one to read. The essay isn't really doing much adding. I'm not taking a lot from from Warfield. I have some clips here and there. But what it did 
was it began to help me, and this is what it, you're gonna get. You're gonna get easily bored with me probably today, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna constantly be trying to call you back. Here's what the essay did. It helped me to think about how the Bible speaks of emotions in light of Christ. And I needed that. I needed that. The Lord, it's almost like Warfield, uh, like I might preach something and you say, man, I needed that in that season. Warfield was preaching to me and I needed his sermon. And I, 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 I began to kind of process and read this. And while I, well, I don't claim to be a therapist, and, and, and I know, listen, I know that for some, my conclusions to certain categories of, of the human experience may frustrate some in, in the mental health field. I do hold a, a couple things as a belief very tightly. I, I hold tightly with both hands, my, my feet, my heart, my mind, all of that. I hold tightly to two realities. The one is I believe in something called common grace, that God grants to human get grants human means for living in this fallen world the, the means of medicine the means of care the means of doctors the means of therapists and the like I, I i understand that god gives us that it's called common grace he gives it to all people christians and non-christians while at the same time i hold very tightly to believe that in scripture and in my savior i find all that i need to live a life of godliness I hold these two things together, that, that there's wisdom found outside in, 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 in wise, caring professionals. At the same time, I believe that the Bible gives us all things that we need to live a life of godliness. Peter speaks to that in 2 Peter 1 when he says, according to his divine power, the power of Christ, the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit hath given, us, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. And so, so where, uh, where I want to encourage you for these next few weeks is when, when you hear the messages to run them through the lens of Scripture. And it might allow you to be free in your conscience to, to uh, accept certain matters of common grace. And maybe for some in here, you're forbidden in your conscience to take certain matters of common grace. And that's fine. That's fine. But I want to encourage you never to lay aside Scripture to accept or receive those means. What I'm saying is, don't go to the means of common grace and prioritize them over Scripture. And so when, we, when I speak about this, here's what you'll know for the next few weeks. I will not do a lot of psychological conversations with you. I will do a lot of scriptural conversations about the emotions of Jesus. Here's the point I'm making here. When someone says to me, knowing of my own struggles that they're working through, that they are working through struggles of anxiety, fears, anger, hate, even lacking joy, I first want to compel them to study those emotions in light of Christ through Scripture. I, I created a little bit of a, a, um, a self-talk statement for myself in dark days. And I would say it to myself like this. When my mental health is in an unhealthy place, I want to find myself before God's face. And by the way, I intended to rhyme that because I needed to remember it. This season of life, and maybe that, that season is going to go longer than Christmas, but in, 
when my, when, when my mental health is in an unhealthy place, I want to find myself before God's face. And one of the greatest problems I do see amongst Christians is they're running to Christ and running to Scripture, but not finding the Savior that the Bible often reveals. And so they've created a disjointed, disconnected Savior that's unable to meet their needs in certain areas. And I believe Christ is sufficient for everyone. One of our tendencies is to, as Christians, is to often see Jesus as a spiritual robocop. We, we, we kind of think of him as this emotionless rescuer. We know and affirm that he's truly God and truly man, but we often disassociate his emotions from who he is. Or we tend to see him as kind of subhuman from us. Right? Like, we're human. Jesus is not really human. If he's barely human, that's kind of our, the way we think of him. He's, he's so God that he is so not like me, which is technically a heretical view of Christ. We read these words in John 1. The word was made flesh. Those six words matter in Christian theology. The divine was made human. He was made man. Christ, two distinct natures. One person is what we find in Scripture and we find that Scripture teaches. Let me note for you one of Warfield's statements in his essay, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. He says this, There is a tendency in the interest of the dignity of His, speaking of Jesus, of His person to minimize. And there is a tendency in the interest of His completeness, of the completeness of His humanity, to magnify His affectional movements, to, if you will, magnify His emotions. The one tendency may run risk of giving us a somewhat cold and remote Jesus, whom he, we can scarcely believe to be able to sympathize with us in all our infirmities. The other may possibly be in danger of offering us a Jesus so crassly human as scarcely to command our highest reverence. You get. I wonder if you get what Warfield is saying. He's saying the tendency is to create this Jesus, out of dignity, out of honor, we, we create this Jesus who is so remote that he couldn't possibly care or understand what I'm going through. The other tendency is to create a Jesus who is so in tune with my emotion that he's, he's absolutely in every way dysfunctional as we often can be. But that's not what we see. In fact, I, I think David Lamb tells us our greatest, our biggest issue at play as we consider the emotions of Jesus. I can resonate with this statement. He says, we're uncomfortable, we aren't comfortable with an emotional God. It's unsettling. I think that's one of our problems. We don't love the idea of our God having any kind of emotion. And by the way, there's good reason for that, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, Bear with me because I'm laying a whole lot of groundwork and then we're going to get to some things by way of conclusion today. We see this sentiment that Lamb gives us. We see this sentiment in one of our most famous Christmas carols, Away in a Manger. We see the following words and every parent, every parent in here can resonate with how unrealistic this song is. You ready? The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my, stay by my side until morning is nigh. That's, 
That song right there articulates the idea that Jesus is woken in the middle of the night, but he's too good to cry. And every parent's like, yeah, I can't, I, that's no baby ever. But you see what we've done. I, I love the, I love the song, but we've, we, and, and when we, when we, we tend to push theology in here that's not biblical, that, that we would have this, this, this baby who, who doesn't cry. But even the adult Jesus wept on two occasions. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Look at the emotions in that passage. Jesus strong crying, fear. And maybe today you're someone who can cry easily. We find find ourselves a Savior who weeps as an infant and as an adult. I propose to you that we have this irrational fear of an emotional Savior. And this fear comes because when it comes to God and emotions, you and I have two issues. You may not think in this, but when I bring them to mind, I think you'll get what I'm saying with this. One is there are certain emotions that you and I see as negative. Hate, anger, jealousy. We would say those are negative emotions, yet they see, and by the way, they seem to be a problem when connected to God, yet the Bible does that. The Bible connects those three emotions to God. That doesn't always sit well with us. Secondly, we perceive emotions as often being irrational, uncontrollable, or confusing. Why are you crying? I don't know. (laughs) Why are you mad? I don't know why I'm mad. I'm just mad. It's not always rational, and it can be confusing. And so we think, man, if God has emotions, this is going to be a problem. But I want to ask you, here's what I had to wrestle with. How do we reconcile that view of God as being emotionless when we come to passages like Philippians chapter 2, which says, speaking of Jesus, who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Or how about Hebrews chapter 2? I told you to have Hebrews available. I'll, I'll, be, I'll look at Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 here for a second, where we see these words, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage for verily he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of abraham wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he, he himself hath suffered being tempted. He is able to secure them that are tempted. Notice the emotions, the likeness of Christ to us. Look at Hebrews 4.15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. There's a, there's a likeness that Christ has to us stated in Scripture. And by the way, John says when you reject that Christ in the the flesh, 
You reject the Christ that was made as the God-man. He says in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. There's a danger in rejecting the fleshiness of Jesus, the human side of him. Now, to embrace that Christ in the incarnation, embrace that he came in the flesh, is to embrace all that he is as the God-man. And over these next three weeks, we're going to do just that. How do we embrace all that Christ is in the God-man, including his emotions? Maybe it would be better if we saw the song, Away in a manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, and little Lord Jesus, loud crying he makes. As we step back from this, my hope is that you'll think at least through it. Can I just say, I don't ask any of you to agree with me on anything. My prayer is that we'll all agree with Scripture. So let's let's approach this. And I, approaching it is tough. I, I found myself uh, wanting, and, 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 and I might be losing you, so I'm gonna, we're going to get into the meat of the message for a brief moment. And let me just prepare you by saying this. I found myself in studying wanting to, to dive right into these emotions of joy and anger even the surprise of Jesus. And then I I got into this and I realized how little context we would have for why this even matters. And and by the way, maybe you're sitting here today and you go, yeah, I don't find this to be helpful because I'm not an emotional person. (laughs) I'm not an emotional person. I'm a a matter-of-fact person. This topic is useless for me. First off, whether, whether you tend to being an emotional person isn't the point. It's not the point. The point is, who is Jesus? That's the point. Secondly, how did he live for us? Do we have a Savior who understands us in our emotions? Or do we not? Do you have a part of your life where Christ cannot speak to something? And I would argue no. I would argue no. On the other hand, you may not be the emotional person, but if you have a spouse, you have children, you have grandchildren, surely the emotions of Christ can help and encourage one of them. And so maybe that's worth considering today. I want to ask you a couple questions. One of them you've probably never thought about. I won't stay on it long. And then we'll go forward into conclusion today. Number one. Here's a question that we have to ask, and you're probably going to say, I have no idea what this means, so bear with me. What, this is a question, what is divine impassibility? What about divine impassibility? Not impossibility, impassibility. Now, this is not a word that you probably heard, and by the way, you could, uh, I'll take the criticism of sometimes this, a service like ours being too theological, but, but, I'll take that criticism all day, every day. But, but I want you to think about this, because this is a very theological concept. Divine impassibility. Central to who God is is the fact that God is immutable. All right? God is immutable. What does immutable mean? That God cannot change. We see that in Scripture, right? In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. This is immutability. 
over in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's nothing about God that's, that's, that He doesn't vary in these ways. So we know that God is immutable. He's unchanging. But stay with me. He is also impassable. What is impassibility? You have the, I think you have the definition there in your handout. Impassibility is the notion that God does not suffer and cannot be acted upon or moved by any other source. It means that he is impassable without passion, without emotion from anyone outside of him. Here's the point of this. Impassibility, by the way, it was not a term that was used often. It, it's the, 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 the word passions was a word only to be applied to you and me, the creature, but not the creator. It's a word that had negative connotations, referring to someone or something that was vulnerable to change, subject to emotional powers of others. And in this word passions, or impassable, we see the difference between, this is the point of it, the difference between the Christian God and the gods of Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, the gods were susceptible, susceptible to emotional fluctuation, susceptible to be overcome by a variation in mood. Gods could, could change and be manipulated by the will of other. One minute there, the, the Greek gods are given to lust, and the next minute they're flying off the handle in a fit of rage. They were, they were passable gods. And Scripture shows the Christian God as being impassable. But don't think impassable as meaning that God is, is not affectionate. Or don't think that impassable means that God is apathetic or lacking pathos, lacking passion. The point of impassibility is that God, hear me, can, his emotions cannot be manipulated. And, and here's the truth of that. You need to be thankful that you can't manipulate God's emotions that one minute he's really happy with you and the next minute he just wants to burn you. That's the point of divine impassibility. That you can't, God is not a God of mood swings like me and you. That's divine impassibility. So how do we take that and say God's emotions cannot be manipulated by anyone outside of God, yet God is also a God of emotion. Well, the scriptures tell us about God's love, joy, pity, compassion, his jealousy, and I go on and on. But here's what you need to know about God's emotions or his affections or his passions. They are voluntary and they are passionate. He is not manipulated by anything outside of him, making him erratic or moody. But within his, within redemptive history, God's emotions are a part of the working out of his will. So God is impassable, but his emotional engagement is voluntary and proceeding from his divine initiative. So God so loved the world. The emotion of God loved the world, and so he acted on that love to send Jesus. That's how we see impassibility as God's choice. He's chosen to love us. It wasn't that we were lovable. Do you get the point? It wasn't that you had 
made yourself so lovable that God said, how could I not love Dustin? It's that God said, I am choosing to love him. And therefore, I will send my son in response to that. Now, God is different from us in that God is not a man. God is not at the mercy of passing emotions in the way we embody we embodied sinful creatures are. God's emotions don't move. We have a day where we're joyful and then we're sad. We have a, jo- a day where we're laughing and then we're weeping. We have a joy when we're, a day when we're when we're excited and then angry. God's mo- emotions are not passing like ours are. And I, truthfully, I feel like if I continue here, I'm going to lose you and you're going to be ready for lunch in no time. So let me just move on. That's a question worth considering. What about divine impassibility? Here's the second question that I found myself asking many years ago, a couple years ago, I should say. What do the emotions of Jesus tell us about him? What do the emotions of Jesus tell us about him? If emotions are connected to our passions, Mark 3, which we saw many months ago, says this. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, Emotion number one. Being grieved. Emotion number two. For the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. Jesus' passions are for the Father and his children. The emotions of Christ are bound up in his fidelity, his faithfulness to the Father, and his obedience to accomplish the purpose for which he came. So the, 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 the affections, the emotions of Christ communicate how God responds to the human condition because God loves us that when we reject God, it is God has chosen to be, to, and we see as in the, in the person of Christ, to have an anger, a grief in our hearts by the hardness The emotions of Jesus speak to what Christ is passionate about. And I think you and I know that. Our emotions often speak to what we're passionate about. What if we understood the the emotions of Jesus as as showing to us that Jesus is passionate about God the Father and His purpose, and at the same time Jesus is passionate about saving us. So therefore His emotions are bound up in that commitment. In John 13, we see these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Notice these words. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The emotion of love, the choice to commit to that, is Jesus being obedient to the Father, faithful to the Father, and obedient to His purpose to die for those that He loves. So to separate Jesus and say He's an emotionless God would be to, 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 in a way, disrespect His love that He has for you. What about in the Garden of Gethsemane? As Jesus prays, Mark 14, 34, and saith unto them, Notice these words from Jesus. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. 
and he went a little, he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Do you see the, the sorrow and the, and the aching of Jesus? Luke 22 tells us that that aching was so deep. The emotional, the emotional pressure of that moment was so heavy on Jesus. In, in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When somebody tells me that Jesus is not emotional for the Father's purpose, emotional for his children, I, 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 I struggle with what the Scriptures tell us we see. Now, I'm, I, I'm not sure my purpose here is to help you figure out the emotions of Jesus. I simply, in laying the groundwork for this, felt compelled to tell you that you have to answer the question of whether or not those emotions are real or not. Whether or not you have a Savior who knows what it means to, in agony, to be so filled with the emotional strain that, he, that his sweat was, as it were, drops of blood. I don't know. I, one, I don't want to. I, I don't want to read into text. But but one one scholar has said it, the understanding of a holy anxiety is found here. But here is what the emotions of Jesus tell us about him: that his emotions are in perfect accordance with the Spirit's work. His emotions are in perfect accordance with the Spirit's work. Meaning, in his life, Jesus lives in total obedience to the Father, in the Father's will, and in total dependence on the Spirit. And so the emotions of Jesus, studied, examined, considered, they reveal to you and I how our emotions can be as we surrender them to the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus gives us a picture of how our emotions can be surrendered to the Spirit. Now, let me, let me finish quickly on this point and then we'll go right into our conclusion. The third thing that I, that I, I want you to consider, I've given you two questions, let me, let me just encourage you to surrender to the mystery of divine emotions. I love the word mystery because the Bible uses it. The mystery of divine emotions is the inability to always make sense of it, the paradoxical nature of it, that we, that we, what we are not is we are not, we are not truly God and truly man like Jesus. But here's what you do need to keep in mind. That Jesus as a man models for you and I a, an, a dependence, a full dependence on the Holy Spirit when it comes to our emotions. That's what Jesus models for us. While you may struggle, like a lot of Christians for the last 2,000 years, to understand the hypostatic union of God and man in, in this one person, Jesus, what you do need to walk out with today is this, what God commands to us, God empowers us to obey. 
I'll come to that in a moment. But the Christmas story is staggering. In verse 18 of John 1 that we read, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him. So Jesus is declaring what no man has seen. That's what John tells us. And so in that declaration of Jesus, all that we see in Jesus is declaring what is found in the Godhead. J.I. Packer says, he says it like this. He says, the Christian message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. But this is only half the story because the word became flesh, a real human baby. Jesus did not cease to be God. He was no less God then than he was before. But in the incarnation, he had begun to be man. He was now, or he was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He, he who made man was now learning what it felt like to be man. Hear me. Even emotions. The mystery of the incarnation is in unfathomable. It's incomprehensible. And maybe you don't understand how God could experience emotion. I'll be honest with you, I've been studying this for hours upon hours for the last several years, and I'm not sure I always find myself agreeing with myself. Or I totally understand how all this fits within the landscape of Scripture. But you know what I want to do and what I want to encourage us to do? What I recommend is that we surrender to what is the mystery of how all of this makes sense in the here and now. And what I want to say to you today is Jesus is the kind of Savior that you can adore, that you can adore. Because Jesus is the kind of Savior who is God and man, able to sympathize with you. Understanding these complicated things called emotions. While, while, while having emotions, but having them without sin, and, and at the same time being God, and so what I want to encourage you to do is to, to do what I, what I have found to be the safest and most biblical thing to do is to know that how Jesus feels for you is real. Did you get that? How Jesus feels for you is real. And that should matter. That should matter a lot because... Because in a human context, we understand how someone feels for us, and it usually matters. The Jesus of Scripture that we find has feelings, their feelings in emotion and passion, and those feelings for us, for God, for His purposes, they are very real. And my goodness, how Jesus loves you. You know what's fascinating about the love of Jesus, it's eternal. It's eternal. My love for you, I can promise you, will die one day. Because I will die one day. But Christ's love has no end. Christ's joy has no end. 
Now here's where I conclude, all right? And I'll be very quick with this. Jesus calls you and me. For instance, Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, he gives us a picture of this, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. There's an idea of an emotional response that is not a sinful response. Here's the point I want to, I want to remind you. If emotions can be commanded by God, then God has given us what we need to control them. It's often a very hard pill for us to swallow. We can bring today, here's the promise of Scripture, and I'm not necessarily speaking of this in an emotional, emotional mental health category. I'm speaking of it as, as people, as, as the, of the emotions of our hearts, that, that along with our attitudes and actions, our emotions need to be given in submission to the Holy Spirit. We do not need to be a people who are reckless with our emotions because God has granted us the Spirit to help us and empower us. And if Jesus is a model for us, which I think we all believe He is, if He's a model of how we could live, then we want to model our emotions after Christ's emotions. Don't get me wrong, I know what I said is more easier said than done. At the end of the day, what's most comfortable for us, here's the, here's the reality of us, what's most comfortable for all of us is actually this. It's that we just love that Jesus has entered into our pain. And we want to stop there without going to the necessary conclusion that yes, Jesus entered into our pain, but Jesus has given us what we need for all things that are life, unto life and godliness. Here's the point I want you to get. I, I, I give it to you in an illustration. Like every illustration, it's flawed, but I want you to think of it. Imagine in a very unfortunate situation today, you came home and you found your house, your building, you found it on fire. You, you pulled up to your house from church and there's your, your dwelling place on fire. And obviously you're, you're crushed, you're, you're weeping, you're crying, you're anxious, you're scared, you're worried. And imagine, I know this sounds silly, but bear with me. Imagine your neighbor came over and your neighbor said, I want to sympathize with you. So I'm going to do the same thing to my house. You would say, please don't. That would be unwise. That would be unnecessary. You don't need to sympathize with me. What you need more than a neighbor who can sympathize with you in that moment is you need a fireman who can help overcome the fire. When I speak of the emotions of Jesus, I appreciate that we have a Savior who can understand and sympathize. What I'm more grateful for is a Savior who overcomes on our behalf. And that's what we have to remember with this, with this conversation. That Jesus may sympathize with you, but Jesus also saves you. That's what you need. That's what you need. What we need most is not a Savior who only enters into our pain, but we need a Savior who overcomes it. And that's what Christmas tells you you have. Christmas tells you you have a Savior. And hear me, I speak to a broad range of emotions today. 
you have a Savior who has experienced every pain that you, and emotional pain that you can experience. He experienced the death of someone he loves. He experienced rejection. He experienced what I will just call the agony and the anxiety of the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced, he experienced the, the, the emotion of joy, the emotion of surprise, the emotion of anger, the emotion, the, all these emotions that you and I experience in every circumstance of life, he experienced it and he sympathizes with us, but Jesus has overcome. And that's our greatest joy at Christmas. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, you know what, I'm here because you said you're going to talk about emotions. And, and you know what, Pastor, I'm just a mess. I can't tell you. I, I, I don't, here's what I, I promise you, I, I don't ask you when I say speak of this, I'm not asking for any sympathy. But in my own struggles, I can't tell you how many times I showed up to this place a mess. My wife and I a mess, and you all ministered to us. I read a quote that I have was recently reintroduced again, and here's what that quote said. By Ray Ortland. He said, maybe you're a mess, but with Jesus, you're a messy woman. And I say to you today, maybe you're a mess. Maybe you understand this emotional conversation more profoundly than others do. And here's the thing. For the most majority of us, our kids are downstairs. In this day and age, we're raising some kids who are struggling to process emotions. I would encourage you to not fight those, but to call them to see them in light of Jesus. And to remind them that they may feel like a mess, but with Jesus, they're a messy woman. And that's what Christmas tells us. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.